My name's John Patrick. Uh, I'm the president of Augustine College, not that that means very much. Um, told me I had to introduce, the, get the evening started, and, but I should say a few uh, words about Augustine, and so I will. Uh, the college, which is what we call it, has only had 12 and a half students on average per year for the last roughly 25 years. And the way that came about is something which I presume most of you will be Christian. You should know about because it will give you a bit more sense of providence and perhaps a little excitement about the story we're in. And one thing led to another and in a very short time we had six professors who realized that university was destroying Christians. They arrive uh, and at the end of the first year we will have deprived them of their mind, their faith and their virginity in random order in that year. That's not a good outcome in most cases. We didn't know what to do, so we started reading. And we realized what every young person and older person now needs is a course which teaches them that following conversion, that's like the national anthem at the beginning of the, of the, the hockey game, if you like. And the real work comes after the national anthem, doesn't it? And the real work is about how you are saved in the present continuous. Uh, and we're not doing that at all. So by teaching the history of science, medicine, art, architecture, literature, philosophy, uh, obviously the scriptures, what we do is show them how we are all the product of Greek and Hebrew learning modified by the church. Now if you want a secularist who's saying to this, it's, you can just read uh, Douglas Murray's The War on the West. There he is, an erstwhile Christian who says, I suddenly realized everything I really loved about the world around me was a product of the Judeo-Christian tradition. The great Gothic cathedrals, classical music, real literature, etc., etc. And yet we're not teaching them to the students. So we started doing that at Augustine College and it works. But we have no money because um, we, we don't have any fundraisers amongst us. So if you know somebody who's at the end of this evening, you in other words, and anybody you know and you can persuade, if we could get a hundred people who would give us 50 bucks a month, for instance, it would make a huge difference, or even less than that. Um, because I'm the only fundraising we currently have because I have a speaking circuit, but I'm in my 80s, it's not gonna go on forever. So if this evening is stimulating to you, come and talk to me or one of the few people here who belong to the college. You'll soon find us afterwards if you stay to chat uh, and help us. But I hope you will enjoy this evening and I'll hand over to Barry. Well, good evening everyone and welcome to our lecture uh, tonight. First Freedoms began about a year ago, really born in the aftermath of one of the most divisive uh, election campaigns I think that we've uh, faced in Canadian history. It was a time of deep introspection for myself as I watched uh, families being split because of government policies, everyone arguing for and against um, what was happening there. Six university students came to my house and they wanted some help with uh, trying to get uh, an exemption from their uh, universities and, their, uh, and, and their, their mandates that they were required. They, they shared with me their stories, uh, stories where they were only had like one course one student had, another one had only one semester and yet they were summarily dismissed. 
It was a, a, a struggling time, and um, that time, of course, led to one of the largest and perhaps uh, most spontaneous uh, protests that occurred in Canadian history in the dead of winter. And currently, right now in this city, of course, we have the uh, Public Order Emergency Commission looking into this whole matter. Lord Sumption, uh, uh, former Supreme Court Justice in Great Britain, uh, recently gave a talk that I think was very interesting as he talks about the proclivity today for many people to seek government to help uh, government keep us safe. And he said um, that we are becoming increasingly dependent on the state. We grow less resilient and less capable of solving our own problems. And that means we also grow more compliant. Our personal lives become less and less private as the government gains more control over our day-to-day -day decisions. And just as we lose the habit of thinking or acting independently, the government develops a habit of authoritarian rule. First Freedoms Foundation, we decided that we wanted to have an annual lecture series uh, named in honor of the former Canadian Prime Minister, John George Diefenbaker, who said these famous words that many of us have probably heard many times before. But when he spoke at the House of Commons on July 1, 1960, he said, I am a Canadian, a free Canadian, free to speak without fear, free to worship God in my own way, free to stand for what I think is right, free to oppose what I believe wrong, and free to choose those who shall govern my country. This heritage of freedom, he said, I pledge to uphold my, for myself and all mankind." End quote. So when we considered about who we would want to be a speaker, our minds quickly went to Professor Ryan Alford, a man of deep intellect who is not only a legal scholar but a legal historian, who has taught much, thought much, and taught much about the state of freedom in times of national crisis. He's the author of the book, Seven Absolute Rights, Recovering the Historical Foundation of Canada's Rule of Law. Professor Alfred explains in that book that there are certain principles of law which precede the state and cannot be violated, even or especially in times of, of crisis. These principles are such that no crisis can ever justify their infringement. But unfortunately, he says, modern states have moved away from these bedrock principles of law. And so if the executive branch of government asserts its power and no court has jurisdiction to review the exercise of that power, then the Constitution is precarious at best and useless at worst. The Constitution loses its ability to limit power. Something more is necessary, therefore, I am delighted to hear what Professor Alford was going to share with us tonight in his lecture, A Free Society Makes Constitutional Rights Meaningful. Please join me in welcoming our inaugural speaker, a tenured professor, Ryan Alford, of the Bohr Alaskan Faculty of Law at Lakehead University. Uh, well, that was a fantastic introduction from Barry, uh, and I have to say I'm, I'm quite honored, and I think the topic is especially pertinent today, given the prominence now of what's sometimes called the Diefenbaker Pledge. 
I've committed it to memory. It's, it's, it's short, it's poetic, right? I'll give it to you again in case you couldn't hear Barry or in case you didn't keep up with his rather good uh, translation um, into modern language. I am a Canadian, a free Canadian, free to speak without fear, free to stand for what I think is right, free to oppose what I believe is wrong, free to worship God in my own way, and free to choose those who represent me in government. These freedoms I pledge to maintain for myself and for all mankind. Let's, let's unpack this a bit tonight. This will be the, the thrust of my discussion today, will be to use my time to kind of think about what this reveals about the nature of the relationship between a free society and the concept of rights. So what struck me right away when I heard Barry say that? Just a few words. Fear, freedom from fear, the right to oppose, the concept of belief, and the idea that freedom is consistent with government and being governed, as long as one has the right to choose the people that govern. Now, this was written in 1960. I think it's somewhat difficult. I sometimes say as a historian, I'm going to have recourse to the usual cliche, the past is like a foreign country. They do things differently there. When you go back to 1960, a lot of things were being done differently. We're crossing a particular barrier. There's some allusions to poetry, and maybe I'll bring in some other allusions to what's been said previously. 1963 is actually the year the 60s began. Not 1960, when Diefenbaker was speaking. 1963 is the subject of a famous poem by the former poet laureate of the United Kingdom, Philip Larkin. A poem is called Annus Morabilis. Anybody know it? Maybe if I do the first few stanzas. How does it begin? Sexual intercourse began in the year 1963, which was very late for me, after the end of the Chatterley ban, but before the Beatles' first LP. And of course, he's referring to the sexual revolution. That was a time when the 60s, as we know the 60s, really began. But if we want to put that into a slightly broader frame, as philosophers sometimes do, we would talk about a concept known as expressive individualism. That has colored the way that we think about freedom ever since. When we think about freedom, we think, what can I do that I could not have done previously? Am I truly free from all restraint? That's very different from the concept of freedom that Diefenbaker is talking about a scant three years earlier. Now, I think just to unpack that concept of expressive individualism a bit more, I want to counterpose two things. One would be, a case I frequently use to introduce freedom of speech to students of constitutional law. It's called City of Montreal and Numbered Corporation 2952-1968, Quebec Incorporated. The freedom of speech, and the freedom of speech in question is a strip club's freedom of speech. A strip club has set up a sound system outside of their strip club that broadcasts not only the music from inside, but also the commentary, the running commentary of the announcer. Now, I just want to use your imaginations for a moment, right? So people are walking down the street in Montreal, and they're listening to the running commentary on the entertainment from inside the strip club. And of course, the city of Montreal said, well, you shouldn't be doing that. It's really offending people who are passing by. And of course, immediate recourse was had to the concept of freedom of speech. Right? Who are you to say that we shouldn't be doing this? 
And that's very much the central question. It's, I'm choosing to make use of my freedom of speech, and who are you to say otherwise? Now, that system couldn't last. And we're going to learn today about how very recently, I would say after 2015, there's been a very big change in the relationship between not only the concept of rights, but its connection to the concept of a free society. As we've moved very sharply away from expressive individualism, and it is something entirely novel, but perhaps not unprecedented. Now, I think this is connected to something that I'm going to point out as the opposite. The most popular series of prints ever sold were painted in 1943 by the artist, actually he called himself a painter, Norman Rockwell. Why did Norman Rockwell call himself a painter? Because he received so much disdain from the establishment. Now this is someone who in the height of World War II, when there was tremendous negative news of reversals, hard fighting, all of these things, he accepted a commission to paint what he called the Four Freedoms. And he painted them before they were turned into prints. As soon as they were printed on the cover of the Saturday Evening Post, literally millions of requests came in for prints. And if you travel across the United States, you find these prints in the most unexpected places. One of the four is called freedom of speech. It's not about um, a loudspeaker of a strip club. Instead, what you see is a town meeting, of the kind of town meeting that is typical of New England. And you see someone who looks a little rustic, who looks perhaps not as wealthy as his neighbors. He's wearing a flannel shirt. He's wearing what looks like a very worn uh, leather jacket. He's standing up in the meeting, and he's grasping the pew in front of him. It's obviously a church. And he's standing up, and he starts looking up perhaps at the dais, and he's speaking his mind. And he's just saying it without fear. And the people around him, are, they're, they're, they're interested in what he has to say. They're according him respect, despite the fact that they're mainly dressed in jacket and tie. They're looking at what he's saying, and they're saying, there is something worthwhile about what's being said here. The freedom of speech going on there is about political participation. So you can say, well, we really should be thinking about the nature of rights, freedom of speech, from the perspective of, do they enable political participation? And there's a lot of support from history for that premise. But there's something even deeper that I believe has changed. And I think we have to pay heed to it. It's the nature of the concept of truth. Now, within this concept of um, expressive individualism, what role do you have for truth exactly? Well, everyone's free to speak their truth, right? Everyone is allowed to say, well, that's just your opinion. The idea that truth is neither something which is imposed authoritatively, nor purely relative, was an achievement of our civilization. It was an achievement of our legal history that we had legal protections for it. But it is a baseline notion. This idea, which is largely rejected by postmodernism, particularly in its applied forms, has to do with disputation. The notion that what is true emerges from the disputation of truth. This is not an original concept. This is going back to Socrates. Socrates is the wisest of all men because he knows that he knows nothing. It's a lot more practical than Aristotle. Aristotle's logical works in this area were essentially the foundation for everything that came later in terms of epistemology, building up models of truth, building up even the scientific method. 
The idea is that even if something is made in an argument on the basis of the opinions of the wise or in doxa, it has to be tested through dialogue. It has to be the subject of a process in which it is rigorously tested by being challenged. And only then can you even tentatively accept it as something to which you should pay heed. Without that, no truth. Now, for various reasons, by the time that we get to the period of expressive individualism, we now have this notion that, well, we can divide things into two categories. Things that are subject to exhaustive and logically complete proofs. Let's just say um, Sir Andrew Wiles, who solved Fermat's last theorem. I don't think you can just say, that's just like your opinion, man. It's uh, several hundred pages of very dense mathematical notation that have been subjected to an incredible amount of testing and uh, determined to be exhaustively correct. It is completely seamless and without flaw. So we now know that for any natural number greater than one, the sum of any two cubes will not be itself a cube on the basis of that. Mathematics, logic. On the other hand, we have the field of rhetoric, opinion. Everyone's opinion is as valuable as everyone else's. Famous Latin maxim, right? In matters of truth, there can be no disputation, as long as that truth is about taste, right? De gustibus non est disputandum. Now, with, in the middle of those two things, we have the realm of politics. Politics is not about taste. It's about interests. It is about people's views, about how they see the world what they believe to be worth supporting, what they believe should be opposed. All of that is supposed to be subject to the tumult of the political process. And out of that, we get something valuable. And we have seen so many instances where we shortcut this process and things go very, very wrong. But increasingly, we're seeing this. At the end of the period of expressive individualism, we now have a period where we're now told, well, it's very easy to determine what the truth is. And it's not what you hippies say, no. It's about what the experts tell you. Listen to the experts. They know the truth. You can almost hear, when it's spoken aloud, the capital letter. You can almost hear the capital S in the word science, sometimes with the definite article, right? The science. Now, if you know anything about this concept of truth that guided us for literally millennia. It was the notion that even in science, things are not conclusively proven true because science is not mathematics and it's not logic. Science, at its core, the method involves the rejection of the null hypothesis, which is to say, on the basis of an experiment, you know something to be false. Scientific theories, if they are to be accepted, are falsifiable. They are not true, and they're not trueifiable, right? The paradigms that we create out of them last until a more sophisticated paradigm comes along. So, well, we thought that perhaps the atom was the smallest unit of matter. Somebody proposed otherwise, and then experiments, they tended to demonstrate that the thesis that the atom was the smallest indivisible unit were false. Does that mean that we know what's going on inside the atom? Absolutely not. And there isn't a single physicist that would tell you otherwise. They would say we have many, many models for this. The smartest people are working on them. 
Some of them do work called string theory. Some of them do membranes out of string theory. Some of them is called M theory. It is all too intelligent for me. But they are not saying you need to accept this because it is the most sophisticated and current theory. Because they know that that's not how science works, and it's also not how truth works. Outside of some very small areas, I would say connected with axiomatic truth. Now, um, unfortunately, when we hear these experts tell us, now you need to understand that this is how truth works now, that's going to have a very strong impact on the concept of rights. And we're only beginning to see that manifest right now. Because right now we see this concept being introduced really out of step with expressive individualism. And that should really give us pause at the great discrepancy between what was going on between 1963 and 2015 and what's going on now, where you're being asked, are you using your freedom responsibly? I don't think we were asking that about the people at Woodstock, were we? I mean, I'm not quite old enough to remember this, but I think it was, hey, look at that, you're having fun, isn't that great, right? Now, of course, uh, the famous story is they left this massive field of garbage behind, right? That the hippies weren't very good at picking up after themselves. But nevertheless, the question wasn't asked, were they using their freedom responsibly? How can we even ask this question? How has it managed to work its way into our jurisprudence? Well, we've come a long way from the Canadian Bill of Rights in 1960. We got the Charter in 1981. Fantastic document. Almost immediately ruined by its interpretation. First section of the Charter, famously called the Limitations Clause, right? It says, these rights are not subject to limitations, except when consistent with the free and democratic society, and it goes on from there. What that's saying is, we can limit these rights. They didn't say how or under what conditions. They only said the limitations had to be consistent with the free and democratic society, something that sounds like the Cadian Bill of Rights. But the way the judges immediately began interpreting this was radically at variance with that. Because what they introduced was a test of proportionality for the limitations of rights. There's two key problems with this. If you're saying, it is my right to worship in my own way, actually in the, in the, the, the original version, frequently abridged, to worship God in my own way. And we say, well, that's subject to reasonable limitations. Well, you tell me if it's reasonable that we tell Orthodox Jews that they cannot hold a minyan at a funeral because they do not have enough adult males under the social distancing guidelines. How can we determine whether or not that is reasonable? Via, purportedly, a test of proportionality, where we will put on one side of the scales some sort of inchoate epidemiological risk, right? Well, you know, if we think about it from this perspective, well, perhaps there'll be this much bread. It's all very difficult to calculate, right? And on the other side, we put the right of people to have the kind of religious ceremony that they have been conducting for millennia that are actually not just part of their religious identity, but also central to their ethnic identity. And we say, ah, sorry, maybe not now, right? I understand that the Catholic Church had masses during the Black Plague, but this is different, right? So we're, we've determined on the basis of a test of proportionality that this is actually not something that we can stand for. Now, number one, there's an incommensurability problem. 
What you're actually doing, rather than comparing two things on a scale, is you're creating a hierarchy of values. There's no other way to, to avoid that conclusion. Because you can't actually balance religious liberty against some sort of threat to public health. Those are just not two things that can be balanced. They're not things that both contain mass, right? They are radically incommensurable. Now, the other problem is we put ourselves in the position, when I say we, I'm saying legal minds for the most part, of imagining that we can assume this Olympian position, this godlike position, where we say, I know what the outcome is going to be if we allow this or we do not allow this. Because that, that's what you need to do if you're going to purportedly engage in this test of proportionality. Well, clearly, you know, well, you know, I've, I've heard this so many times in my life, you know, not just in this context. And when I put it in different ways, sometimes people get it, right? I say to people, do you remember when Dick Cheney said, if there's a 1% chance that some sort of mass terrorist event could happen, because it's so horrible, we need to treat it as a certainty, the 1% doctrine as it was called, right? And you know, sometimes, in his words, you have to work the dark side, which means, you know, well, we torture some people, we do the whole Jack Bauer 24 routine, but you know, because it's gonna prevent this horrible outcome, right, famously said by Condoleezza Rice, we do not want the smoking gun to come in the form of mushroom cloud, that we say, well, what wouldn't be warranted in those situations? Why are you complaining about the limitation of your rights when this is at stake? And for this, just insert whatever you want, right? Mass terrorist event, epidemiological um, catastrophe. How about ecological catastrophe? It's infinitely malleable, and it can be used for people of every political persuasion. And it puts the judge in that position of saying, I am the all-knowing and all-seeing sage that can perform this calculus. Well, I hate to tell you this, but they love it. If you think that they're saying, take this from me, take this burden from me, O oh Lord, right? No, they're not saying that. They're saying, we want more of this, right? Why? Well, Rosalia Bella, former Supreme Court Justice, has gotten very frank. She speaks extrajudicially even before she retired, and she says some pretty amazing things, one of which is, well, it has to fall to some body to serve as the ultimate arbiter of contested values. The Supreme Court of Canada, which she's a little bit too modest to mention, just has to serve as the ultimate arbiter of disputed social values. Well, you see, the problem is, with the older version of truth, it wasn't experts that were supposed to perform that function. It was society that was supposed to serve that function. And failing that, Failing the idea of society collectively resolving those contradictions, which it does, has always done. Failing that, democracy. Because what you're talking about when the judiciary intervenes and says, no, that's not constitutional, right? Because it goes against our idea of how these contested social values should be resolved. It's saying your representatives, the one that you have the freedom per John Diefenbaker, to select, should have no role in this. It's simply too big a question for Parliament. It has to be left to the experts. So there is a clear erosion of the idea of the political. Now, what I'm telling you here also is not novel. Some very intelligent people 
all across the political spectrum, uh, just one example would be Professor Rand Herschel from University of Toronto, have talked about the judicialization of politics. He's gone a bit further. Very well-recognized treatise across the political spectrum. He calls it the judicialization of megapolitics. We now have issues that are deemed to be too large or too complicated for the political process to handle. So who has to take it on? Oh, well, I guess it has to be the apex court of a country, like the Supreme Court of Canada, or perhaps the German Constitutional Court, or, <laughs> as is frequently the case, the European Court of Justice. Now, um, we've got a real problem here, because the legal system as it currently exists is being torn between these two concepts. And they're not just concepts of rights, they're not just concepts of the free society, they're concepts of truth and how it should be determined. Um, I would say this, um, maybe you should ask a historian a bit about this. Just a very modest thought, right? Uh, let me give you my pitch. The Constitution, people refer to it, uh, they say, well, you know, the, the Constitution, i.e. the Charter from 1982, right? Well, no, right? Um, 1982 was the charter. We had a constitution before then, right? We had Baker's Bill of Rights, what we call a quasi-constitutional instrument. And then we had the Constitution Act 1867. Now I'll tell you, if you think it's a leap to go back past the period of expressive individualism, back to the days when men wore bowler hats, etc., right, 1960, this is before swinging London, right? Um, John Steed is the, is the pre- expressive individualism and Emma Peel as the post, right, in my cinematic metaphor here. Uh, we, well, never mind going back that far. Let's go back to the men in top hats at Charlottetown. You think you can just look at that document and understand what they meant. And you think you can say things like, well, the values they were fighting for clearly should have included X, Y, and Z. They were fighting for this, so therefore, what logically extends from that, according to the experts, is this and that and the other, right? Well, we don't even do that very well from 1982. 1982, the document, known as a charter, has a central guarantee in Section 7 that everyone has the right to life, liberty, and security of the person. Everyone understood what that meant in 1982. There was no dispute whatsoever. It was procedural guarantees for the accused in criminal law. No dispute. Everyone has the right to life, liberty, and security of the person and not to be deprived thereof except in accordance with the principles of fundamental justice. Namely, we can send you to prison if we give you a trial. And if that trial has all of the guarantees of due process that we recognize as being fundamental to our legal order. What does Section 7 mean now? What do I teach when I teach Section 7? Okay, well, I mean, the cases I teach insight, right, that you can't, you can't criminalize the possession of heroin in the vicinity of a safe injection site. That Parliament can't criminalize that. They want to pass this law that says, well, you're outside of insight, you're, you're carrying heroin, we don't like that. Well, no, they can't, right? That's against life, liberty, and security of the person. And it's not in accordance with principles of fundamental justice because it's arbitrary. It's overbroad. Again, this very open-ended consideration, very much like proportionality. After, well, in addition to insight, we have Bedford, right? The notion that we can't criminalize solicitation for prostitution. So if you're seeing ads, 
you know, in, in many, many publications, uh, some of which actually used to be printed on dead trees, for the services of escorts, well, uh, just realize that they're in there in part because Supreme Court of Canada says that to prohibit that advertising would be contrary to Section 7's guarantee of life, liberty, and security of the person, and not in accordance with the principles of fundamental justice, because it's arbitrary or overbroad. And then finally, you have Carter and medical assistance in dying, where you cannot have a provision in the criminal code that prohibits medical assistance in dying. I'm, I'm going to actually use the finger quotes here. Usually I just indicate them with my voice, but here I really need to gesture it out. Because as you've seen from just several weeks ago, we're now using that concept, and experts in the field of ethics, by the way, those two terms, your antenna should stick up based on what I'm telling you about the nature of truth, right? Experts in the field of ethics. Wow, okay. Uh, they're telling you that we need to consider medical assistance in dying for severely disabled infants, newborn children, assistance in dying, right? And of course, if you're an expert, right, you can somehow go through all the contortions to say, well, this, of course, this is ethical because it's premised upon consent, and the consent is, of course, held by the parent, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Look, you can do all of that. Look, it's still quite obviously eugenic euthanasia. If it looks like a duck, this is all I'm saying. But how have we gotten to this position with Section 7, where a procedural guarantee for trials is now used as a basis for saying that Parliament can't legislate the contours of medical assistance in dying? That if they come in and say, hey, wait a minute, we didn't envision this being extended to people whose terminal medical issue is mental illness. Now, that's not a hypothetical example, right? When we're saying that Parliament cannot say thus far and no further without medical for medical assistance in dying, quote-unquote, because this is really an issue of constitutional rights that has to be reserved to the experts in resolving the contested social values. Just one more example from Rosalia Bella, which I think is topical, right? So we saw the Ford government legislate school custodians back to work, right? Now, um, you know, I don't think that's great. I've always been a union person. Um, but let's be clear. When Dalton McGuinty did this, and he did it, right, um, many, many other premiers have done similar things, nobody said this is contrary to the charter. Because prior to 2015, the right of freedom of assembly, right, and we think we know what the purpose of freedom of assembly is, right? Um, is anybody here from uh, the archives building on Wellington Street? Uh, I think that there's a pretty clear example of people trying to assemble to make a political point, and I don't need to think to go very far back to, to give you that example. But nevertheless, the right to strike since Saskatchewan Federation of Labor in 2015 was determined to be part of the right of freedom of assembly. And the words of Rosalie Abella are this, and you're probably not going to believe me, but go ahead and look it up. She said, the time has come to give the right to strike constitutional benediction. Benediction! Constitutional benediction. I have to be careful. I'm, I'm standing at a pulpit. But it's remarkable. But I don't think it's a mistake. Right? This is the idea of the people who are elevating this, themselves to this status, where they can then say, 
And remarkably, too, right, this is uh, how society's contested values should be mediated. Not only that, but this is now part of our Constitution. It wasn't before, but we're saying it is now. And it's very frank, because she's saying, I'm giving a constitutional benediction. The usual routine is to pretend that nobody had noticed. You know, it had always been in there since 1982, but, you know, it just escaped our attention. The problem was, in three cases known as the Labour Trilogy, the Supreme Court of Canada had said exactly the opposite. They had put themselves on the record as saying, well, obviously it's not about um, the right to strike, right? This is about, it's not, this, it's not about Wagner Act labour relations, right? Freedom of association is a much older constitutional right than that. Well, you see, it's not easy to do even for a document written in 1982. Judges get away with a lot of um, fancy footwork routinely. Now, the 1867 Act, more so, right? Put yourself in the minds of people back in that time period. What would they have thought about particular things? You can do it. It just takes a tremendous amount of work. Let me tell you why. Because I've done that work. This is why, you know, when people talk about being experts, I'll tell you, most of the experts that I know, they devote their time to a very narrow field of study. And usually what they say is, I can say something tentatively about this, and only this, and even that only with many caveats and qualifications. Smartest people I know, and believe me, I know some pretty smart people. Um, kind of strange to see people just opining, you know, well, of course. You know, it's, it's, it's obvious, you know, when it comes to very disputable facts. The facts that were up until, let's say, the day before yesterday, eminently disputable. Because they were connected to our model of truth, where truth emerges from being disputed. For instance, science, medicine, politics. Well, anyway, um, now we're being told that the Ford government is acting against the Constitution when they legislate people back to work. Now, again, it's not whether this is good politics or bad politics, because that's subject to disputation. Now we're saying this is in the Constitution, and it's beyond being disputed, except perhaps by these sages, right? And they'll do the same thing with the 1867 Act, which purportedly contains within it a principle of democracy. That would have been news to John A. Macdonald, believe me, uh, the notion that we were building a democracy in the first place. Democracy was usually used as a pejorative epithet, right? Democracy, rule by the demos, right? The normal model was mixed government, which was in the form of constitutional monarchy, a combination between a republic and a monarchy. That's what we had in 1867. But more importantly, contained in the 1867 Act, we have the preamble. So the very first words, right, telling us what it's all about. By the way, the charters are, anybody know it? Barry probably knows. Founded upon the, the rule of law and the supremacy of God, right? What we had in 1867 is a constitution similar in principle to that of the United Kingdom. Well, okay, what was the constitution of the United Kingdom in 1867? Well, it was, as judges will tell us, it was comprised of a number of instruments, right? Blackstone enumerates them in what's considered a book of authority. And he starts, well, let's go back, backwards from 1701. Uh, we have the Act of Settlement, we have the English Bill of Rights, we have the Habeas Corpus Act, we have the Act Abolishing the Star Chamber, we have the Petition of Right, go a long way forward back from there, we have the Six Statutes and we have Magna Carta, okay? Magna Carta predates Parliament. 
It was enacted as a statute more or less right away when Parliament came into being as a way of enforcing a guarantee that had been reaffirmed, let's say, by Henry II um, and then later Henry III. So perhaps it would be good to look back to history. Here's the problem. I mean, I've just told you the utility of doing that, right? If you want to understand our Constitution, you absolutely can't do it, at least not in a principled way, without saying these words have a particular meaning, not just what we put in there to, in, in accordance with our own subjective views, although some people would, like Rosalia Bella, grasp that nettle rather firmly. But if we're going to do that in a principled way, we need to understand that meaning as it existed in the historical context. Supreme Court has said so numerous times. Why do we not do that? Why is our view of politics and truth and the free society no longer being derived from the tradition of freedom that John Diefenbaker pointed to? It has a bit to do with expressive individualism as I introduced it. The notion is, what did those people know about anything anyway? Right? I mean, let's just take Philip Larkin's um, poem as a starting point, right? They didn't even live in the age of casual sex, right? I mean, their, their minds must have just been completely full of nonsense, right? That they weren't doing what we're doing all the time. You know, I mean, if it feels good, do it, right? And then they look back at their parents, their grandparents, and they see fools. They see people who don't understand anything about anything. That's the, the, the hubris of youth, right? Well, that generation has grown up. Unfortunately, it's never really come to terms with this because the notion is there is nothing to be learned from the past, right? It's all just rank superstition. What will we have to learn from John Diefenbaker? The man didn't even have Facebook or, you know, insert whatever thing you want to add, right? No. And when you hear that speech and when you read the Canadian Bill of Rights, he's making his case for why you should listen to him because he's drawing upon these body of principles, many of which are biblical, right? But in the common law, elsewhere, not that that's uh, watertight compartments. And he's saying, that's where my wisdom comes from. Nowadays, and we're getting to this in this phase now a little bit faster, post-2015, truth is not determined by reference to what had been done in the past. It's not even in reference to the present, the way it was in the period of expressive individualism. It's determined by reference to the future, right? In the future, we want to see this. We want this to be realized. So therefore, this is how things should be interpreted now. And if you disagree, you're hidebound, right? We are building this beautiful utopian society. One might even say we're building a tower that will reach to the heavens, right? And we're thinking that once we complete that, hey, you know, we, we've achieved, and by the way, leftists have all kinds of funny ways of describing this. Uh, the most pungent one, which is actually used, is, and I quote, fully automated luxury communism. Uh, once they achieve fully automated luxury communism, well, we're going to have a wonderful society. And we're not going to have to worry about all of these things that were caused by, what's the cause of these things? People clinging to the past. People refusing to let go of their traditions. People refusing to let go of their right to worship God as they so choose. They are obstacles to progress. Now what we're talking about, so I'll loop it back to this notion that people are using their freedoms 
in a way that's not responsible, right? By virtue of what? Well, you're getting in the way of something. You're getting in the way of the future. And this, if you heard me reference precedence, maybe you're seeing some sort of family resemblance here, and I haven't been particularly subtle, but there were plenty of rights in communist countries. You could pick up their constitutions, and they had all of the rights that everyone had, right? But then when you exercised them, and you were ultimately put on trial for that, your own lawyer would say, well, the problem is you weren't doing it in a way that's compatible with constructing the socialist future. That's a real problem. You're supposed to use your rights responsibly, right? And either you accepted that, right, the notion that you hadn't used your freedom responsibly, or alternatively, you must be insane. All of the leading Soviet dissidents from that period who refused, who stood on those rights. So post-declaration of Helsinki, Soviet Union signs onto rights guarantees. It says that we will observe all these great human rights. Soviet dissidents try to take them up on that promise, use it, right? They're hauled into court. They're being told they're not using their freedoms responsibly. They then say, well, I feel differently. They say, oh, we understand. You're insane. Andrei Sakharov, et cetera, et cetera. They are sent to psychiatric hospitals. Right? Because that's how far we got away from the concept of truth. Very common, right? What determines truth? Well, the historical process projecting forwards, the march of history, what is necessary to it. And eventually, the slogans are replaced by the line. Right? This is how the line that we have to cleave to to achieve all of this. Right? Um, if you ever really want to have a, uh, a really, really... Um, harsh confrontation with this way of thinking. I really recommend reading Darkness at Noon by Arthur Kessler, right? Because he accepts all of that logic at face value, him being a former communist, and he takes it to its logical terminus. It is absolutely chilling. We haven't quite gotten there yet, but we're starting to accept this logic that people's freedoms can be judged by whether or not they are being used in the service of the public good. So frequently on social media, I'll see this retort floating around. I don't know if you've seen it. It's freedom, F-R-E-E-D-U-M-B, freedom, right? Look at how stupid they are in the way that they use their freedoms. Well, this person isn't trying to do this for the purpose of uh, some sort of idiosyncratic self-expression. They're attempting to be part of the political process. And you then say, essentially ex-ante, right? You know, before you even hear their argument. Well, I know that you're stupid because the experts have told me that, that you shouldn't be using your freedom in that way. That's irresponsible. And when we put that on the scale of proportionality uh, 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 analysis, we can see how wrong it is. So dangerous. And if you think it just affects the people who can be labeled as dumb, right, very easily, I'll point you to a case. So there's a mention of University of Chicago, which for a very long time was a bastion the freedom of expression, right? So there was a professor there. He's a giant in the field of law and economics. His name is Professor Joseph Epstein. Everybody at NYU where I studied, we thought when Joseph Epstein came to, to teach us as a visiting professor that, wow, you were going to learn from one of the smartest people out there, genuinely smart, knew the limitations of his intelligence. But famously, he was a dissident on COVID lockdowns. Why? They asked him, how can you oppose this? Look at all the deaths. 
And he said, there are never going to be that many deaths, and I can tell you that with certainty. People said, how can you possibly say that? And he says, I'm looking at your model, okay? Your model for this disease at this level of spread, at this level of lethality, here are the outcomes. And I don't see you building into this model the fact that people are going, without being told to do so, to change their behavior in response to it. The model just assumes that in, as we're being told about a, a deadly pandemic, right, that everyone is going to behave in exactly the same manner unless they are told and indeed enforced otherwise. Right? So, well, right there, I can tell you that's a problem with the theoretical model. This isn't coming from um, John Q. Public. It's coming from someone who really should fit the bill for being an expert, right? I mean, if anybody qualifies that designation, it would be Professor Joseph Epstein. Um, but nevertheless, he was cast out very quickly. He was thrown under the bus. How can you dare say that? You're completely wrong about everything. He was pilloried. And of course, he wasn't 100% correct, but he never claimed to be. He claimed to be advancing a discussion about how we could determine truth. He was using his freedom of speech to help us to have a political determination on a question that's not really subject to balancing. And that question is this, how much of your liberty are you going to abandon to prevent the spread of a deadly disease? And if you ask that question, or if you point out that these things can't be balanced, no matter how well credentialed you are, you will have labels affixed to you. All I said is, those things can't be balanced. I didn't say, at the end of a political discussion, that you would necessarily come out to one position or the other, okay? But that's the purpose of the political discussion. Not to say that ex post ante, the people who disagree with people who have given the designation of experts and who retain it for various reasons are people who should not be listened to. Well, this is a problem, right? History will tell us how to solve the problem. Freedoms exist in a democratic society, not to restrain people's expressive individualism, not so that we can achieve greater good by using them responsibly. Go back to that speech of John Diefenbaker. What does he say? He says, this is my defense of freedom under law. Now, in the period of expressive individualism, people might think, aren't those two things antithetical? You know, well, you know, I'm, I'm being a little bit pejorative to hippies. I don't, I don't think they exist anymore, so I'm being a bit harsh. But the notion is, well, law would be a restraint on my freedom, man. But, but no, 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 no. You're defining yourself against it. A counterculture requires a culture, right? All your creativity is in reaction to this, right? And freedom under law, the antithesis of law is not creativity. It is not democracy. It is not expressive individualism. History tells us what the antithesis of law is. It's tyranny. Always has been. Law emerged as a concept. We know this. Right? Not long after we rediscovered Roman law. So we had barbarians roaming across Europe. Right? Generally a bad time. Right? One of those dark moments in human history. And at the end of it, some monks, right, who had been these little islands, these monasteries were just islands in a sea of barbarism. So there was a monastery in a place called Bobbio, which is near Piacenza in Italy. 
And somebody found on the shelf of the library the Institutes of Justinian. And there was a, wow, right? We can use this law and adapt it to our society to create a society where there are restrictions on authority, where people do not act as tyrants. Because even, even during the Dark Ages, the notion of a tyrant never went away, right? It's, it's in the Bible. It's, it's certainly features quite well in St. Augustine, right? This notion that tyranny is what needs to be constrained. We have rights so that we can have a political process where we do not have the rule of one. We do not have a tyrant. So all of the rights that that emerged in this heritage of freedom from the time of Magna Carta allowed people to participate without fear of retribution from the tyrant. Very simple. Magna Carta they cannot kill you for what you say. Six, uh, where are we going forward to? Uh, act to abolish the Star Chamber. You can't be tortured for what you say. There are no warrants to the Tower of London to rack you anymore. Um, petition of right. We can't use martial law as a basis to say that we'll use extraordinary measures to use force against you. Habeas Corpus Act. We won't let the monarch send you out of the jurisdiction to Scotland or to the Isle of Jersey, where allegedly the writ of King's Bench will not run to release you if the charges against you are not warranted. Uh, move forward, English Bill of Rights, very much the same, an expansion of this ability to participate in the political process. You have the right to independent judges, active settlement. All of these are designed to prevent you from being subject to retribution for participating in the political process in such a way that the legal order does not collapse into tyranny. Now, that's a very compelling theory of the connection between a free society and rights. And that theory is called constitutionalism. The very notion that the Constitution exists, the reason why we have an idea of the concept of the Constitution, is so that there will be something above the rule of anyone. That even above judges, above parliament, above legislatures, there is the Constitution. For us to give that effect, the Constitution has to have meaning. It can't be the case that we say it means whatever this group of people says that it means. But in order to do that, we have to engage in history. Now, right now, the very same people who are creating this new attitude towards truth, right, who are telling you about how rights have to be used in responsible ways for the creation of their particular vision of a good society, they're telling you that history is nothing but a litany of shame, that this heritage of freedom that you should be drawing upon, taking pride from, right, Taking pride from that means that you can draw upon it to oppose the political measures that you don't agree with. But all of that vocabulary exists from the past. If you want to say, I'm going to hold you to a standard, and that standard has a a particular meaning, it has to have a meaning in a historical context. Now we're being told more and more that there is nothing good in the past. There was no alternative than to but to look to the future for how you should orient yourself towards truth. Now, I have to say, 
I've got a serious issue with this. It, it's presented as objectivity, that there are no examples for us to draw upon in the past, that if you attempt to keep these traditions alive, you are doing nothing more than perpetuating uh, injustices and um, systemic discrimination of various types. It has been a relentless onslaught for people in my position. Uh, just to give you one example, and I know my time is getting a little bit limited at this point, but I want you to think for a minute if you can remember the 1619 Project, the most powerful journalistic outlet in the world, the New York Times, commissioned a work of history. And the work of history wasn't done by historians. It was principally done by a journalist. And the conclusion of that journalist, now, now does this sound like an empirically verifiable truth? That the true founding of America was not 1776, but rather 1619, the date on which the first African slave arrived in what became the United States. That's the true founding of the United States, right? Capital T, capital F. Not something that you should dispute, mind you, because historians who came into that debate and said, and again, across the political spectrum, and said, that is completely false. I can't believe you're even asserting this. I can't believe you're asserting that the American Revolution was fought to preserve the institution of slavery which was one of the key contentions of the 1619 Project. You had people like Gordon Wood, somebody who wrote you know, frequently for the New York Review of Books, kind of you know, the kind of person who would be invited to write for the New York Review of Books, coming out and saying, well, this is preposterous, the notion that the American Revolution was fought to uphold slavery, right? It's nonsensical. Uh, and by the way, it's internally contradictory for various reasons. But when historians came in and said this, they were chided because you shouldn't be saying that. Somehow in the service of a greater truth, you should accept this. And the greater truth is determined by, is this going to help us to achieve the kind of society that we want, where we acknowledge the hurt caused by all of these practices in a manner deemed adequate, right? But as for the internal inconsistency, I'm just going to bring this to Canada very briefly, right? Um, so if the American Revolution was fought to preserve slavery, it's very strange, right, that the British Empire allowed the United Empire Loyalists to bring their slaves with them, right, when they left what became the United States to what is now Upper Canada. But, now we'll hear in Canada, well, that just shows Canada's terrible legacy of slavery. Well, in the first session of the first parliament of the Legislative Assembly of Upper Canada, a bill was adopted to abolish slavery. They had just come, they had, they had just traveled as refugees into this place that was, you know, essentially reserved for them, right, by the, the British. And the first thing they did is they let's abolish slavery. And there was some contention, obviously. Slavery had to be phased out, and compensation had to be provided to slave owners. The bulk of that compensation, something that you'll probably never hear outside of this room, um, the bulk of that compensation went to one person in particular. His name was Joseph Brandt. Joseph Brandt, uh, also known as Thandanega, had approximately 300 African slaves. That's about, um, I would say it's roughly 30% of all of the slaves who ever lived in slavery in Upper Canada. And that's not strange, because slavery has existed in every society across time. Everyone. Go back far enough, slavery. Right? It's just that it happens to be 
that the British and their empire was the first place where it was abolished. Right? Then they might not have had chattel slavery before they had serfdom, etc. Um, let me tell you as a historian, it's a very fine distinction. Um, not that I'm, again, people would say, are you defending a certain practice? Not. I'm providing you with some historical facts. Right? And the historical facts are the historical record of Upper Canada is not a litany of shame. It has moments that we're not proud of and has moments we should be proud of. Of course it does. And within that, we have, unlike many other societies, a particular attitude towards a free society and rights that made our country and our tradition the envy of the world. I'll just I'll, I'll end on this note. Uh, I have been following very closely what's happening in Hong Kong. And it is unbelievably sad. Because what you've seen in Hong Kong is the complete systematic destruction of the rule of law. And it's appalling because even as the trapping still exists, right? You know, there are high court judges in Hong Kong still wearing wigs, right? Barristers still wearing wigs. As this is going on, all of the substance of the rule of law is just being stripped away completely mercilessly. Now, those people, if you believed a certain type of narrative, you would say, well, surely they would be glad that all these trappings of British colonialism are being swept away. I'll tell you, I have never seen more heroism than the legal profession in Hong Kong in the past 10 years, of a kind that I can't even imagine anyone living up to here, maybe some exceptions. Uh, but they believed that they were the inheritors of that heritage of freedom. As Stephen Baker said, we treasure that heritage of freedom not for ourselves, but for all mankind. Not because we say we've done something better, but we say we've managed to achieve something that we want to share. And I think Hong Kong shows us that. That if you would tell those people who are fighting for the rule of law in Hong Kong that they're trying to preserve some British colonial anachronism, they would tell you that they'd feel sorry for you that you've lost that link to that heritage, that you've been taught, rather than having pride in those accomplishments, that you should feel shame. And let me tell you, from a psychological perspective, there's generally only one reason why we try to induce shame in other people. It is to control their behavior. If you want someone not to resist, if you want them to say, I will accept what you're saying, the easiest way to accomplish that is to induce a feeling of shame. You're not worthy. You can't stand up in a town meeting and just talk like that. You should be afraid of what you say. All of those rights. Who are you to oppose something? Don't you know the experts are for it? You should be ashamed of yourself, using your freedom in such an irresponsible way. This is the key. They take the history that contains the basis for holding the government accountable, which is the basis of our constitutional tradition. And they say that this needs to be viewed in this entirely new light based on a different conception of the free society and of truth, one that doesn't have a place for the citizen, the free Canadian, to say, I support this because I believe it is true. Those are the words, believe, right? Not that I've conclusively demonstrated with double-blind studies right? Because we're not talking about the realm of logic or mathematics. We're talking about the realm of the political. Now, sense of history. You can say it's all well and good, right? 
You have had all the benefits of this. Your community has had all the benefits of this. I was talking to the cab driver when I drove in here. Um, and I said, he was talking about how cabinet ministers during the Freedom Convoy could be seen walking throughout Ottawa. He saw um, uh, Minister Freeland walking on Spark Street. And I said, you know, that that's, hasn't always been the case. Did you know that a cabinet member was shot to death, assassinated on Spark Street? Yes. In 1868, Thomas Darcy McGee was walking down Spark Street and he was shot dead by a Fenian. Thomas Darcy McGee was Irish. He was born in Ireland. For a long time, he was a radical Republican. But he came to believe that despite all of the prejudice against Irish Canadians in the 19th century and all of the religious restrictions that existed against Catholics in the 19th century, that it was still his best chance that all he had to do was to convince the powers that be to live up to their own words, to say, you have these guarantees, you provided them, you say that we have these freedoms, I'm going to hold you to those words. He was seen as a collaborator because he didn't believe in the kind of future that the Fenians had in mind, which was one that involved a revolutionary uprising in Ireland that was going to bring Ireland back to a, a strange utopia where people no longer spoke English and etc. right? Well, I can tell you go to Dublin today, there's not a lot of Gaelic being spoken. Uh, but my point being, when Thomas Darcy McGee had his funeral in Montreal, it was the largest funeral in Canadian history because people understood the pathos of someone who had been excluded all of his life from all of the guarantees of freedom, who nevertheless saw the value of the heritage of freedom and said, I am going to say that we should be able to speak our minds, that we should be able to participate in the political process, and I believe in that process. I'm going to hold people to that promise. That is the core of political power, not saying, I feel ashamed of all of these rights that I've inherited, and I'll do whatever I want just so that you won't make me feel worse. To just use another metaphor that I hope people will have this, um, this currency with, that would be selling our birthright for a mess of pottage. Now, finally, freedom, truth, the free society, what would be my message for you for how we maintain this? It's just very simple, two things. I would say, realize that as a citizen, you have the right to speak, to believe, and to oppose. And that no one can tell you that you're not doing that appropriately. But my advice to you would be to see those outside of the frame of expressive individualism and put it in the frame of political participation. Because if you don't do it, and more importantly, if you feel shamed into not doing it, the freedoms that you abandon today will be the freedoms that your grandchildren never knew that we even had. Because history itself is now in the balance. Thank you. Well, folks, I can tell you, I would love to have an opportunity to be a student in Professor Alfred's class, uh, to hear such uh, eloquence and uh, the way in which you articulated the argument here tonight. I just want to thank you so very much, and you've certainly uh, given a, uh, a great uh, rendition to the memory of uh, John Diefenbaker. So thank you again very much.
Now, um, we are going to have a reception um, uh, immediately after this so we can uh, continue our conversation and uh, speak with uh, Professor Alford. Um, I'd just like to, to mention here um, that uh, to put on a program like this does cost money, and we did have it as a uh, free admission, but if you would like to give uh, to, uh, to us, we uh, both uh, uh, First Freedoms and uh, Augustine College would be very appreciative of whatever you uh, would be willing uh, to, uh, to help us out with the expenses uh, for this lecture series. And uh, if you'll note that we had this lecture uh, the night before Remembrance Day because of uh, the significance of um, you know, the, the gift of freedom that we have in this country, and it, it didn't come cheap. Um, but uh, we hope to make this an annual event, and uh, so we, we just want to let you know that. Uh, so you can already begin planning for next year. No, I just, uh, but uh, anyhow, we will be making this uh, video available. It'll be up on YouTube. It'll also be uh, on our various um, social media outlets as well. And uh, so again, thank you so very much for coming. Sally, is there anything else I needed to say, just in case? Sorry? Are you up for some, okay, for a few minutes? Okay. <laughs> okay. So, uh, if we do have some questions uh, that you would like, to, uh, please come to the mic right here. Uh, to ask a question, and uh, I invite you, Professor, to come up and uh, join us. Thank you for that wonderful talk. Uh, I was wondering if you could tell them, if you could instruct them on how to apply Section 1 of the chart. If you could say, forget the jurisprudence, forget what your other colleagues have said, mm. from now on, how are you going to apply Section 1? What would you tell them? Okay, so that's a brilliant question. Um, the problem that we have is that it's very hard to convince them to abandon all of this jurisprudence post-Oaks. So what would the realignment look like? I, I, it has to be very blue sky thinking, I think. It would be, the problem we have now is that with Oaks, it encourages the government to begin with the thought of limitation. They're not saying, we, we, we do this limitation, or we, we, we enact this legislation, oh, and it, by accident it happens to limit rights. They start by thinking, well, can we justify this by reference to the Oaks test? So I would just say, like, one lodestone for how the test should be reformulated is that if there's any suggestion that the legislation was contemplated with the idea of limiting the rights, but that's an automatic disqualification. Limitation of rights should be a doctrine that only comes into play when there's some sort of incidental or unintended effect. It shouldn't be the purpose of this is to limit your rights in a way that we think will ultimately be deemed defensible. And then where do you go from there in terms of how it should be reformulated? I guess part of, like, if you look at the actual text of Section 1, it should be pointing to some sort of idea that if you don't allow for this sort of limitation, the free and democratic society itself is in peril, not just the compelling governmental objective. 
but rather the democratic society itself. That, oh, well, if we did this, we allowed everyone to do, I don't know, I mean, I'll be spicy, I'm not a big guns rights guy. If we allowed everybody to have an artillery piece, we'd have some real problems with, you know, society. Well, that would be, yes, we can justify this by reference to the fact that it might erode a free democratic society to have armed militias or things like this. But not at the level of the uh, promotion of governmental objectives. I thought about talking about this. I'll repeat the question. How do we account for this huge shift between this age of essentially unbridled expressive individualism to what is now effectively a strangely puritanical moral order, where the collective uh, judgment of people's peers on social media is incredibly scathing and repressive? How do we account for that sudden shift? Um, so technology would be one. Um, I thought about talking about this, but I knew it would take up a lot of time. I would say for me, if I was going to investigate this further, I would begin with the work of Jacques Ellul, E-L-L-U-L, -L who wrote two really phenomenal books, one called um, Propaganda, the Formation of Men's Attitudes, and the other called The Technological Society. And I think he talks about this link to something that Hannah Arendt talked about, where Two, there's two dynamics. One would be that expressive individualism failed because people couldn't make meaning when there was nothing left to define it against. Like when you could just do literally anything and the response of people is, oh, oh, um, you know, oh, sex parties, that's so 1988. You know, um, the idea of the, the, the thrill of transgression, which was propelling that to a, a, a large degree, it really failed. I'm thinking of Philip Reif, um, too, right now, as somebody to look into with this. So this notion of the collapse of meaning, even the meaning that comes from opposition. So loss of faith post-60s in the existing order, kind of rebellion itself losing steam. I think of that famous passage in Hunter S. Thompson's Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, where he talks about the, the high watermark of the 60s being hit and then breaking backwards. And then I would say also just the kind of alienation that that creates. And Elul and Hannah Arendt would say, no one is ever more alone when they're among the mass, right? You think it's a group of people, but it isn't. You're alone in it. You're not participating in a community. You're not participating in dialogues. You're not participating in society. You're just alongside someone else consuming something. Um, there's a tremendous alienation that comes from that. And then when you tell people, well, here's how your life can have meaning, right? I mean, um, that was the chief appeal of communism, right? I mean, it, was, it wasn't people who thought that they were doing evil. They thought they were beginning this beautiful mission, right, to save the world from the rapacities of capitalism. And they, if they had nothing else, you know, and mainly that could be just because of the conditions in which they live, and spiritual poverty, certainly, right? That they're going to embrace that. Any kind of form of meaning, even if it's the meaning of Gotterdammerung, right? Twilight of the Gods and 
nihilism and destruction. It's going to be better than nothing at all. Um, so I, I think there was just a complete collapse of um, appeal from expressive individualism, just more and more depression, more and more alienation, more and more anomi, and then just how do we get meaning out of this? And I'll just say one thing, I'll be extra spicy here. Um, it's amazing to me that when we tell the story of Greta Thunberg, okay, we're talking about a teenage child who suffered from severe mental illness, who needed help for anorexia, for uh, any number of, of problems, right? And then this person, when they embrace with absolute zeal a cause, right, we then say, oh, well, everybody listen to her. I mean, the, the, the dynamic is very clear, right? I mean, I've been this person. When you are, you see nothing else, and someone gives you this cause, that you then say, well, this can help me to be not just a nobody, but maybe the most important person in the history of humanity, right? The one who told people, if we don't save the world now, etc. It's, it's a very compelling, but perhaps disturbing psychological dynamic. And I'm, I'm really sad. I think that if we took mental health seriously, we would be seeing people who throw themselves into these causes, and we'd have people going to them and saying, what's going on in your life? How can we make your life better? What do you need, right? Not just saying, well, isn't it great that you're flinging yourself with abandon into you know, blocking the highway and putting yourself at risk of being maimed, you know? Because, because teenagers are, are not doing so well right now, in my opinion. Perception.